So, good evening. It uh, hasn't quite been two weeks since I got back from Thailand. It's uh, 11 days, maybe 12 days. And I, I am feeling good. I'm feeling like I got over my jet lag and starting to plug back into the community. And it's great to be here to see the community just getting on with things. And it's a, a big community and very much feels like being with friends, being with family, Kalyanamitta. And I can't emphasize enough how grateful I am that Ajahn Shunda and everybody looked after things while I was able to be away for seven months and let go of the role of being abbot of this place temporarily. That's incredibly useful. So being away for about not, not quite seven months, it's uh, December 19th last year that, <coughs> that I left for Thailand and went to Wapananachat and there's a huge ceremony there for the opening of a new Oposita Hall, a new ordination hall. That is a very, very beautiful building. And there I met up with Ajahn Seik, who's going to be coming here day after tomorrow. And so it'd be very wonderful to have him back. And I was, Ajahn Seik was coming into my mind a little bit during the meditation. I was reflecting on some of his beautiful qualities, the qualities of the Isan people, the people of Northeast Thailand in general, have a lot of gratitude for being able to meet them and live at the monasteries in the northeast of Thailand. This quality you see in the, of these, like somebody like Ajahn Seik, who's a very, very good man, and the quality of toughness, uh, patience, but also really strong gentleness and metta at the same time. It's a, it's a very interesting mixture of qualities. So very much looking forward to greeting him back into the community here day after tomorrow. And to try to talk about my time away is uh, a little bit much to talk about. I don't really want to give a travel log so much as just talk about maybe some of the qualities I was reflecting on while I was away and also things that are coming up for me now. So, for example, quality of compassion is coming up really strong for me these days. And not compassion in terms of may all beings be free of suffering, not just that reflection, but compassion as it's actually practiced. So I find compassion is actually a really good antidote to irritation. So if I feel irritated or I see somebody doing something I disagree with, I find that going to compassion can actually be an antidote to that negative mental state because it is an irritation, frustration. These are negative mental states. These are unwholesome mental states. And it's, if I'm irritated or frustrated with somebody, it's not their suffering. It's actually my suffering. So, but if I go to compassion, then the mind can be made, put into a wholesome state. And then that's happiness for myself here and now. That's well-being here and now, and I can easily let go of that unwholesome mental state. So metta, in terms of how it's applied, I would say having an affect of friendliness 
It doesn't mean we have to like everybody. It doesn't mean we have to be friends with everybody. But we can have an affect of friendliness. And we can be nice to people. Even if we're at odds with people, we can still be nice to them. We don't have to be doing things to try to frustrate other people. So metta is when we actually generously kind. We can be generously kind with others. So how kind are we able to be? Are we tight-fisted with our kindness or are we generous and open-handed with our kindness? Are we able to be kind to everybody or are we still at the level of just being able to be kind to the people we like? So, and if we're still at the level, if we're just able to be kind to the people we like, that's fine. And just with mindfulness, we note that's where we're at. But if we wanna up our game a little bit and level up, say, in our practice, then we can actually try to be very open-handedly generous with our kindness to others. So this is combining generosity and metta. And the Buddha said, what's the stain of generosity? The stain of generosity is, is giving only a little, giving with a closed fist. And purity of generosity is giving with an open hand and giving wisely, giving much, giving at the right time. So can we give and can we be generous with our kindness, with our openness? And so with, with compassion, also when we set an intention of compassion, when we meditate, then that helps us to be humble, I think, as well. So if we have a, some sort of profound experience or some sort of experience of stillness during our meditation, if we've somehow mixed that with compassion beforehand or we have an intention of compassion, chances are we're not going to get so puffed up by that deep state of meditation. We're not going to use it in a way that we can try to lift ourselves up above others and use it to bolster our sense of self. And the Buddha spoke in dispraise of that type of thinking where he, he goes through every... Actually, there's a sutta where the Buddha goes through every stage of the jhanas and he says, if one uses that state to lift oneself up and disparage others, then they've misunderstood the teaching. And they, won't, they won't break through to wisdom. So it's very important. I found trying to combine compassion with the meditation, also it really softens it. And so the wisdom is starting to be nurtured as well as the meditation, as well as the, say, the stillness of the mind. Also, Long Pa. Pasano is not here right now, he's, he's in Canada. His mother, Rhoda, who many of you may know, she's going to turn 100 tomorrow. And I find this quite extraordinary. Uh, last time I saw her, I know she was here last April, but I was in Thailand at that time. The last time I saw her was at Katina last year. And so of course, she was 90, 99, and she approached me and said, I'm, you know, I'm available, I don't have anything to do. She had her walker with wheels and she was moving pretty fast and she said, I, you know, I'm available. What do you, you do, have, do you have some work for me or something? And uh, so I didn't quite know what to say when a 99-year-old uh, woman is asking me to assign her some work. And so I said, well, maybe you could greet people. You could be part of the greeting committee. So she was happy with that. and. Uh, just think it's uh, that kind of toughness. Uh, Lung Pa exhibits that as well. 
and just thinking about her a bit and how she's going to be a hundred and how this is very, very special. And she doesn't seem to be slowing down that much just yet, but a hundred is, not everyone makes it to a hundred. Um, that's just a few days before coming back to America. I was invited to a ceremony at Wat Ratanawan, and there was a, a lot of senior monks there. Lumpur Pat was there, Lumpur Liam, Ajahn Jayasaro, many, many others. And, and this was a ceremony for uh, Ma's mother's 100th birthday. Apparently she was born one week before Rhoda. Uh, but she's, she's a little bit weaker than Rhoda. She can still walk assisted and is, it's still very impressive that she's 100 and she's so uh, present and as bright as she is. So seeing, you know, getting to say, okay, there's the birthday of one person turning 100 and now there's a birthday of another person turning 100 and they're both people connected with our Dhamma family, so somehow it seems special and worth reflecting on. It's a contemplation of old age. Very few people will grow to be 100 years old. Most people will die before that. And in general, we don't, I don't think we contemplate old age enough. If we contemplate old age and we contemplate ourselves growing old, then I don't think we'll be as, the, the mental obsessions with things like, uh, thinking about the future and uh, taking refuge in future plans, these things won't seem as real, seem as important to us if we think about old age. And it's not only our bodies that are growing old, but it's buildings. We had to tear down these old kutis, these four kutis that we're rebuilding. And so we're rebuilding these so that people can use them and meditate, do sitting and walking meditation have a sense of coolness and ease and well-being. And so these, these buildings have a lifespan as well. And monasteries grow old, monasteries mature and have their own lifespans. Wapananachad is built on the site of a 700-year-old monastery, apparently. Yeah. So we contemplate old age and and our eventual death. And these are good things to think about because the body isn't a refuge. So during tea time, there was a bit of a discussion. There was a question about refuge. So I thought I would talk a little bit about refuge as well because that dovetails well with these contemplations of old age and death that we do all the time in Buddhist practice. And of course, we're, we're taught the body isn't a refuge. If the body was a refuge, it wouldn't grow old, it wouldn't die, it would follow our wishes, it wouldn't get sick. Uh, to a certain extent, we can control it a little bit. We can look after our diet, we can eat less sugar, we can do yoga and qigong, but still it's inexorably moving in that direction towards old age and death. And so the body, we rely on it for, this is what we call one life's shelter. So there's 
one night's shelter, there's one life's shelter, and then there's the true shelter, our real home. So the one night shelter is our dwelling place, whatever that may be, uh, whether it's you know Ajahn Kasapo at Three Jewels Branch Monastery with the, his cardboard walls and bamboo. It could be that type of shelter, one night shelter, or it could be the kuti that we're living in. That's one night shelter. One life shelter is the body. So this body, for however long our lifespan might be, that's one life's shelter. And then the true shelter, the deathless shelter, is the refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. That's our real home. That's the Vimuti Dhamma, or the home of liberation, where the mind is free, and then everywhere is our shelter. And that's the true and lasting home. That's the true and lasting shelter. So the Buddha taught about these three different types of shelters. And then we have Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So we have external or uh, outside Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and then we have inside inter internal Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So the Buddha, of course, ex external from us, the historical Buddha, who had this amazing life story and out of compassion attained liberation for the sake of all living beings, and we receive the fruits of that even now. 2,566 or so years later, the Dhamma that that historical Buddha taught would be the external refuge of Dhamma. So the teachings that we have collected in the suttas, also the teachings of the Kruba Ajans and the any teachers that we felt inspired by. So that's the external Dhamma we have as a refuge, something we can rely on and we can listen to Dhamma talks, we can read the suttas, we can think about it, reflect on it, and it can help us to solve our various problems in our lives. Then there's the external refuge of Sangha, and that is the community of Kalyanamitta, the community of practitioners, not just monastic practitioners, but also lay people. So that's the refuge of Sangha. Sangha just means community. So it's the community of practitioners, the community who is we lift each other up and help each other to stay on the path of practice. And there's the internal refuge of Buddha, which is the awareness. So the, the Puru, the knower, the internal Buddha is the knower, the one who knows, uh, the one who is awake, uh, the one who is always refreshed. That's the internal Buddha. Or, the, or we would say the true Buddha. The Dhamma in the internal sense is the truth of the way things are. So the, the internal Buddha knows the internal Dhamma and that's the, that's the internal refuge of Dhamma. Then the internal refuge of Sangha is what we call sila or virtue that we can rely on as a protection. So the external refuge of Sangha is an external protection for us our Dhamma friends who lift us up, help us to stay on the path. And then the internal refuge of Sangha is the, the virtue inside that makes us one of those, that makes us part of the Sangha, whether we're monastic or lay people. So the internal refuge of Sila, actually these, these robes are just, and this shaved head is just a symbol of being a precept holder. That's what it's pointing to. So this person is holding precepts. That's why they're donning the banner of the Arhants, the banner of the Enlightened Ones, the robes, 
the triple robe set. So it's just a reflection, a reminder. These are people who are holding to that internal refuge of Sangha. And then uh, you have the ultimate refuge, which is when the three refuges are realized as one. And this is what somebody like Tanajan Mahabua talks about when he talks about how, when he realized Dhamma and he talks about these three refuges actually being seen as one, as three facets of one thing that's in the heart. And so that's the ultimate refuge. So that, that ultimate refuge is the real home. And everybody in the world is taking refuge in something. So we tend to take refuge. When we think of taking refuge, it's where we go to find a place of safety and find where we might want to, uh, where we feel security. We feel that we're in a safe space. That's where we go for refuge. So everybody in the world goes for refuge somewhere. So whether we go for refuge, we, if we feel a sense of disease or we, and we watch TV or we seek any, any sort of distraction, or we go for refuge in, it could be anything, could be anything, food, um, or it could be whatever religion that we grew up with, we could go to that for refuge. And so one way to uh, see where our refuge is, it's good to use mindfulness to see what are we currently taking refuge in. And are we taking refuge in irritation? Are we taking refuge in frustration? Are we taking refuge in uh, the qualities of kindness and compassion that the Buddha taught about. What are we taking refuge in? Are we taking refuge in awareness, in the meditation? Are we able to take refuge in that when things are difficult? So when things get difficult in our life, the mind is going to go somewhere to take refuge. And so if things get really difficult and our mind ends up going to the Dhamma teachings for help, that's a really good sign. That means we've started to take refuge in the Dhamma. This is called the gotrabu, or the change of lineage, where we actually uh, no longer take refuge in the things that we took refuge in before. We no longer go to that, the same places because we realize they actually aren't the true place of safety. But we use the Dhamma teachings, or we use the, it could be the external refuge in Buddha, or the internal refuge in Buddha, to uh, find that place of safety and help us to solve our, all sorts of problems in our lives. And so if we go to refuge in that way, that's, that's very good. If we go to refuge in the Dhamma teachings, that's using the Four Noble Truths, trying to apply them to our lives to uh, help, help ourselves to overcome all sorts of difficulties and issues. And there's constantly going to be difficulties. There's constantly going to be issues in our lives. It's just unavoidable. There's always going to be issues with if it's not with family, then it's with friends. We might have a friend who we were friends with for a long time, and then suddenly we find ourselves at odds with them. And so at that point, when, when we find ourselves up against these difficulties in our lives, then we can use the Four Noble Truths to help ourselves to feel better. So one is acknowledging the truth of suffering. You know, this is dukkha, this is suffering. So for example, when we get frustrated with something, or we get irritated, we can say to ourselves, well, this is dukkha, this is suffering here and now. 
Or if we have a moment of kindness or compassion, we can look and see with mindfulness, well, this is non-suffering here and now. And how does that happen? Why does that happen? The cause of suffering. So if, if I'm suffering, if I'm frustrated with somebody or irritated with some sort of situation, then that's suffering for me here and now. And the cause of that is I don't want things to be this way. I want that person to be different. I want this situation to be different. And if I don't use the Four Noble Truths, then what the heart is telling me, what the mind is telling me is that, that the it's not telling me that craving is the cause of suffering, or it's not telling me that something inside of myself is the cause of suffering. What the mind is telling me is, this person is the cause of my suffering. This situation is the cause of my suffering. This illness is the cause of my suffering. This government is the cause of my suffering. This society is the cause of my suffering. This monastery is the cause of my suffering. This guy sitting next to me who's eating really loud and won't stop is the cause of my suffering. This guy who's sitting over there eating lettuce in a way that is really wrong is the cause of my suffering. You know, you could, uh, anything external. And, uh, but really, oh yeah, right, Four Noble Truths. Craving is the cause of suffering. I, I just want this situation to be different. And it's my suffering, it's not, it's not the other person's suffering. So then we start to see that, okay, we, we, we call this turning the light in. We, we come back inwards and we see, oh yeah, this is the cause of suffering. And then the ending of suffering, it's the third noble truth. And a lot of times this one is obscure because we don't notice when we're not suffering. When we are suffering, we're trying to get out of it somehow. We're focused on, I gotta, I have to think about the Dhamma teachings or I have to go maybe visit an Ajahn and try to get out of this suffering. But when we're doing well and there's non-suffering, we tend to not notice it or acknowledge it. So the third noble truth to be realized, this is, it's, it's really, really important to see when we're not suffering and make much of it when we actually do have a sense of ease and well-being, when we actually do have a sense of joy and even if we practice for a long time, we start to develop a very deep sense of contentment and happiness. And to note that, that's third noble truth, so that's cessation of suffering. And then the path, how is, how is the path working in our lives? You know, there's a, a group here that's going to start a program on nonviolent communication, and I really support and encourage this kind of thing. Because for me, something like nonviolent communication, that's focusing intensively on the third factor of the Noble Eightfold Path of right speech. And each factor of the path, we really do need to put focus on it and make much of it. So nonviolent communication is really putting that intensive focus on right speech. Or we might decide we're at a, we're at a point where we want to put intense focus on right livelihood. So as monks, we're not supposed to hint. We're not supposed to seek gain with gain. We're not supposed to belittle people or pressure them into giving us things. That's right livelihood for bhikkhus. So we might want to put intense focus on that. Because if one, even one factor of the path is off, it's not going to come together in the ending of suffering, ultimately. So this is very important to think about this. And then there's the mind that's either kusala or akusala. It's wholesome or unwholesome. And so the, the unwholesome mind, it's, it's really easy to get stuck in. 
So I found most of the time for myself, if my mind is unwholesome, this is another reflection I had going on a lot when I was away, was being able to be humble enough to admit when the mind is unwholesome is very difficult. And so when my mind would get on some unwholesome train of thinking, like oh, things are this way and they should be that way, and why is it this way? And I have to tell this person that this, and I have to tell that person that. And these unwholesome proliferations that would take place in the meditation. And then the, the mind gets tight, contracted. The body gets a bit contracted. And it's unwholesome. It's unskillful. It's a cause of suffering. But then flipping that around and saying, it just doesn't matter. And there's really no need to proliferate about these things. It's not really a big deal anyway. And anything anybody does or thinks, that's their issue. And I can come to them with open-handed kindness. And so having that conversation with myself in retreat and realizing, oh, it's such a relief. It's so much better when the mind isn't in that unwholesome state, in that state of irritation or frustration so much better when it's when it's uplifted when i when i can uplift it with kindness and compassion and uplifting it with the brahma viharas actually <clears throat> that uh, it's it's refreshed spacious cool much less thinking when the mind is unwholesome there's more thinking because we need to think of how to it, there's always a sense of righteousness with it. Like, I'm right, though. You know, I need to change the situation because I'm right about it. So it can be righteous indignation, righteous anger, but it's unwholesome. It's unwholesome by its very nature. So we can take out the anger part. We can just be righteous. We can just be ha have a mind that's uplifted and open. It's, there's always going to be things in the world to be upset about. It's very easy to get upset, but it really, it takes some skill to really make the mind wholesome. And if we're able to start to make the mind wholesome, one, that's gonna give us energy, we're gonna feel uplifted, and other people are gonna start to notice. So it's, and it's, and it's a state of non-suffering. It gives us some ground to stand on. It makes the meditation so much more pleasant. It makes everything so much more pleasant. Everything we do in our lives. We meditate in the morning. We work here at Abayagiri during the work period. We, we uh, help out in various ways, have the meal. When the mind is in a wholesome state, we can be having the meal and just having incredible states of gratitude come up for the food offerings and what we get given. And then gratitude is very wholesome, so it builds on itself like an upward spiral. Uh, just over a month ago, I got offered a, somebody, just without hesitating, offered to get me a knee surgery. So I had a knee surgery a little over a month ago on my left knee to fix a torn meniscus. And uh, that's why I, some people may have noticed I was struggling with the sitting on my toes and bowing earlier, so I'm not quite 
back. I'm still, still in recovery mode from that. It's not painful, but it's, things are still a little bit stiff and tight. But just somebody just offering that to me out of friendliness and uh, knee surgeries aren't cheap. They're much cheaper in Thailand than in America, but they're still not cheap. So being the recipient of generosity and then, and then having the feeling of gratitude. And the, the word gratitude in Pali is katanyu katawedi. It's a very interesting word because kata means to do. So katanyu katawedi has a feeling of doing, like a, it's connotation of doing something. So things done to us, we want to do something back. We actually want to give back. And that's different than appreciation. Appreciation is a feeling of thankfulness. And gratitude in the Pali word, katanyu katawedi, is that impulse to give back. And that's, that's also a, ver a foundation for all sorts of other wholesome mental states. So we can just be eating the meal and have incredible gratitude coming up and feel very happy and content while eating the meal. Now that, that kind of thing comes about after a long time of practice. I, I know as a junior monk, one vasa, two vasas, eating the meal was you know watching the defilements and states of greed and, and wanting to eat good foods and it was this very kind of grim activity. But now it's just, uh, wow, great. It's, it's a different experience. So those are a few, a few reflections. I'm just very happy to be back and very grateful for the community here. So I'll, I'll leave it there for this evening.